Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Thanks for joining Steve and me today, the 1st of March, 2019, where the question we're posing is, shouldn't Christians watch their language? It's a great question, Andrea, and I think it's one that Christians already consider. We have a list of vocabulary that most American Christians recognize that are off the list, off the acceptable list. They are naughty or swear words, but I think that there is something else we need to be considering when we say watch your language. Right. Language is the way in which God communicates to us through his word. And so it's a phenomenon today that rather than using biblical language, we take the language of the culture. And there are plenty of examples of that. And when we take the language of the culture, it's hard to even know how to fit certain words into a biblical lexicon. For example, saying someone is racist, saying someone is sexist, saying someone is homophobic. I'd like to know the chapter and verse where we find those words delineated and God's sanctions against them. Do you know them? Well, certainly we can deduce certain biblical principles. There's that one point where we have to recognize that there is not any subject that the Bible is silent on, right? The Bible speaks to all of life. And so if there's an issue, whether it's racism or sexism, we have to first acknowledge that the Bible is the standard. I think a big issue we have in American culture is we, through these terms, racism uh, or, or sexism, have taken a standard that exists in the world. For example, for racism, we look to the 1964 Civil Rights Act and say, well, the government has defined racism to be these 10 things, instead of saying God's standard has a universal application for how we should treat people from different countries. And then we can deduce from the Bible, there is no Jew or Greek. There is uh, the brotherhood of all mankind. And then, then there's God's chosen people in and outside of the covenant. The standard has to be not in the language of this world, these kingdoms, these people, but really going back to scriptural standards to Christ's word. So the Bible talks about righteousness and unrighteousness. And when we're under the banner of unrighteousness, we're talking about sin. So sin is a transgression of God's law, either by omission or commission. However, not all sins are given a civil sanction. For example, If I have a bias against people with brown hair and brown eyes, and I use that because I have brown eyes and I used to have brown hair before my hair went gray, but (laughs) if I have that bias and I act on it in terms of hating someone or failing to express and live out Christian charity, it's not that there isn't a consequence for that, but it's not a consequence that goes into the civil sphere. However, if my motivation for hurting someone or harming someone is based on that, instead of giving an additional penalty, the penalty in Scripture would be what it would be if anybody did that to anyone else. 
So in our culture, we confuse sin with crime. We make them the same thing. And on top of it, as we all know, there are certain crimes in our society, which the Bible says should be crimes, but they're not granted the status of crimes. And there are certain things that we would even concede that the Bible said is sin, but doesn't say that the civil government should come in and deal with it. That's right. And then even on that same vein, there are things where our laws agree with the scripture. You know, we say thou shall not murder. And in all 50 states, at least between two adults, to murder is still considered a crime. But uh, as we've discussed in previous podcasts, the sanction, the punishment, again, is usually based on a standard other than God's word. And that's really the powerful part of uh, Christ's ministry and uh, his apostles' ministry is that they take a standard and make it the same for all people. And what's remarkable is you look at the, the apostles of Christ himself and the things you described, um, hating people of different colors and all those things. Many of our apostles could have been seen to have had certain prejudices and the law itself did not police those prejudices out of people, right? The law had allowed prejudices to exist for millennia. It was only when the true law of liberty, when Christ came and redeemed people, that he was able to overcome those prejudices. So the legislation itself didn't overcome them. And those prejudices, they uh, required real transformation. And today we see a return of uh, what is under the guise of love and equality, a new legalism against racism, a new legalism against sexism, a new legalism that calls things homophobia. There is a rise of new Phariseeism where the world has taken those old, ancient, legalistic methods and has tried to police our thoughts and our motives more than take a reality and look at the actual impact and effect of our actions. And we would expect that. Those who hate God will be the enemy of God's people. But what I'm specifically talking about is how believers will take this terminology and then categorize things, not in terms of the commandments of God, but in terms of what the culture says. And so as soon as we do that, we have accepted the relativistic definition, which basically says the people in charge get to say what's right and wrong. And so we start taking words like, well, he's gay, he's queer. See, these are words that had meanings quite apart from the sexual orientation or actions of people. And when people start using those terms instead of biblical terms, they're in a sense giving way to the whole rationale behind justifying certain things that the Bible says are outright sin. And what's embarrassing in Christian culture is that the, the folks who have been perpetrating a revision of our language, who have been using words like queer and gay to promote their ideology, have more confidence in the power of their words than Christians do. Right? We serve a God who says he came as the word, and yet we have allowed the other side to define the terms of engagement. And so little by little, increment by increment, they have subverted the meaning of these terms and have used the power of the word to overcome governments and voting blocks and cultures and families. They have just through the dictionary been able to conquer a large portion of Christ's kingdom just by how they said things and how they define their terms. And that's the part that's maddening 
because when we do that, we can't speak with the authority of Scripture. So let's take the most basic things. The Bible doesn't talk about spouses per se. The Bible talks about a husband or a wife. The Bible doesn't talk about siblings per se. The Bible talks about brothers and sisters. And interestingly enough, those biblical words denote gender. And yet, somewhere along the line, because maybe it was easier, instead of having to say brothers and sisters, that you just said siblings, or instead of saying husband and wife, you said spouses, what we did is we denutered, or denutered, or we neutered, however you want to call it, the... (laughs) know which would be the correct term there but what we did was we took out god's definition and description and is it interestingly enough now we're fighting over pronouns not using the pronoun that somebody wants used as opposed to what we see jesus said he'll give sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and how many people know that that boy is a boy he's not a girl but because they think they must go along with it. They don't stand on the rock. Recently in the news and in the media, there's been some controversy because of a recent Hollywood movie uh, featuring the mu- music artist, uh, and I use the term artist loosely, uh, Lady Gaga, because one of the movies she was in was up for an award. And in this movie, there's a lot of different things that happened, but it brought up a lot of her old music, which is connected to the LGBT movement. And there was this very popular song that they talked about how this character who's now in this movie is really mainstreamed uh, LGBT identity. She started with music like Born This Way and has now moved into major motion pictures. And my wife and I were reading through this in in an article and she stopped and paused and she said, it's so funny that several years ago it was all about Born This Way. And then today the new LGBT mantra is let's change the way you're born so how quickly it has moved from some biological identity that they were born gay and now it has to be we have to mechanically change who you are for you to express who you are they are what i think saint james calls double-minded with their language and their understanding and they don't know how to control their even use of language unless it suits their particular agenda but again we would expect that What is disturbing is the fact that so many do not use the proper terms. You know, how does the Bible describe people who either have the lust for or act out these impulses of wanting to engage in sexual relations with people of their same sex? The Bible calls it homosexuality. We hear the word sodomite. But Because we want a kinder, gentler Bible and where we have to almost excuse God for the language he chose, we come and use the terminology. Well, it's a lot different when you have to explain what sodomy is than when you have to explain what being gay means, because gay means happy. So I guess that means that they're happy people. Right. And that is the the very troubling thing. Uh, If we have a discussion about the definition of homosexuality, the language has become so developed and evolved, nuanced, that even a conservative Episcopal seminary, like where I went to school, we have people who are considered the conservative edge of evangelicalism, defending uh, what they would describe as celibate homosexual relationships or celibate homosexual lifestyles. And all of this cannot be walked back 
to conform with the scripture. <laughs> if you say the other way, if you change your language to be uh, celibate sodomite lifestyles, it doesn't make any sense. And so subversively, we have to take back and watch what we speak. Right. And we're not just talking here about a sexual orientation like homosexuality. And again, the Bible doesn't call it an orientation in the sense of some people like blue and other people like green, or this is how some people are born. The Bible calls it an abomination. And if we use any other term but that, we're basically going along with something other than God's word. But it's not just restricted to that. How many people say that person is, is committing adultery? We'll use the term, he's having an affair. Mm. We'll talk about a parent doing something untoward towards one of his or her children. We won't call it incest. We call it abuse. And so there becomes this murky thing. I mean, incest is a very specific word that specifically means a specific thing. But abuse, it can mean anything. It can mean somebody looked at me the wrong way. It can mean somebody touched me the wrong way. It can mean a lot of other things. And so I think the acceptance of this dictionary that makes it that Christians are often unable to not only stand for truth, but even convert the people or help convert the people who are entrenched in these sins. Right. And the choice of language is not a a neutral debate. Uh, Many years ago, Dr. Rushton, he wrote a pamphlet against a certain modern language translation of the scripture. I'm sure that he, like any other Bible scholar, considered the original Hebrew and Greek to be the most important manuscripts to understand. But he wrote critically of modern language translations. I think the one he was writing in particular was the uh, New Revised Standard or the Revised Standard at that time. And he recognized way back in the late 60s that the changing of the language of the Bible, uh, putting modern language in there, also had an an agenda that if you could change just a few words here and there, you could subvert entire biblical principles. And that's really been the foundation from the beginning. You look at the Ten Commandments, and it begins with how you should use your voice to honor God. You know, (laughs) thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. That's primarily talking about the way you speak about God should be guarded and protected. And then even if you look at Jesus's admonitions about how to user voice. He says, hallowed be thy name. When you mention the name of God, you should be making it holy. And I think that applies to the rest of our speech. Christians have a special responsibility, both through the law of the Old Testament and through the law of grace, to take our words and our tongues and use them for building up the kingdom, which requires us to be be very mindful of what words we're using and how they're being defined. And we could expand on not taking God's name in vain if you are proclaiming yourself to be a believer, a Christian, and you act and speak in ways that aren't that, then you are taking his name in vain. You're claiming a privilege that those who are led by the Spirit have the right to be called the children of God. Well, if you're not being led by the Spirit, if you're, and the Spirit doesn't fight with the Word, and you adapt any other point of view or definitions for things, then you have no right to be called a child of God. And also, in when we talk about choosing language, as I mentioned at the top of the talk, we often think of a list of foul words or dirty words. But primarily, when St. Paul is talking about 
filthy language like he, he does in the fifth chapter of the book of Ephesians. He is talking not just about some words that might be offensive to the ears of his listeners, but what St. Paul means by filthy is specifically behavior that is mentioned that would like flout social or moral behaviors, moral standards. And when we allow our language to be subverted by these opposing moral or social forces, we're really engaging in filthy language to describe adultery as an affair, right? Like a, a weekend event you would do, an affair. Exactly. <laughs> is, is, is to flout what God has said is his standard. It's to make your language filthy. To describe something profane as flowery is filthy language, not just the words we start with, you know, F-bomb or something like that. Filthy language is language that dishonors God's standards. So filthy language can be flowery, but at the base of it, it smells terrible. All right. Or when people are fornicating, which would be outside the only sanctioned way of scripture in terms of sexual intimacy is in covenant and marriage. We call it making love. Well, mm -hmm. it has nothing to do with making love. It's violating God's law. And I think we have to bring back these very, very precise words like fornication, incest, and adultery, and we rape instead of abuse. And that if something is doesn't meet that standard, that the standard is very explicit in Scripture. Now, granted, it takes wise people to adjudicate, but it's almost impossible to adjudicate things when your justice system is an injustice system. No, that's, that's absolutely right. And what's really missing in our justice system is that there's a certain honor to our language. Uh, you know, it used to be a witness would come, they'd put their hand upon the Holy Scriptures, and they would make an oath that their testimony that they were about to give was true. That oath was valuable because the words behind the words that came after the oath were based upon the words that you meant in that oath. If all of our language is being debased and to mean a multiplicity of things, then the very thing we're trying to protect, you know, the social justice movement, um, Me Too, they're trying to protect the witness and the testimony of women who are truly hurt. And of course, all Christians want to see true justice. But when we go about redefining and undermining the value of an oath, of a commitment to God, of our own testimony by debasing the language, it's really doing a disservice to the cause of justice. If we can't have a solid biblical definition of what rape is, then those who are truly victimized and injured, both spiritually and physically, by rape are the ones who are, at the end of the day, being harmed by our manipulation and degradation of language. And if we don't teach people what God says are capital offenses, and we don't explain that these actions and these, these ways of doing things or carrying out your life are, in God's eyes, worthy of death, if we don't use the biblical terms, then we're going to have a very difficult time even talking about the biblical sanctions. I hear this all the time from a lot of my students. Well, okay, what about a situation where, and they give a situation, well, and, and how does somebody approach that in the courts? And I say, I have bad news for you guys. Until the courts are more afraid of going contrary to God's word than they are 
about not being able to get the political favors they want, you're not going to see justice. That's why Christian Reconstruction is important, because we have to rebuild on biblical foundations. That's right. Another thing I see, and it's prevalent on social media, when you hear people talking about the contradiction, for example, between you can go to jail for uh, spanking your child, but it's okay if you murder your child before or immediately after the child is born. And you have, and I know that some of these people are believers, will say, are these people crazy or what? I mean, is this insane? Okay. Are crazy and insane biblical terms? Mm. It's the problem with the people who say that it's okay to do the things I just mentioned. Is it that they're insane or is it that they're wicked? Right, right. And that's missed. There's a distinction there. They're not recognizing that their choice of labels and how they define how other people are acting is creating the parameters of what is acceptable. And if we have it, a judicial standard of saying here are acceptable behaviors and these are unacceptable behaviors. Unacceptable behaviors are wrong because God says so, because they're wicked. If that's our standard, then not only will we not be surprised when they do those things, but it gives us a way back, right? If we just say they're crazy, delusional, I've also seen something in political posts where people say, well, that particular political ideology is just a mental disorder. When you start giving labels in that direction, then you're saying those people are a lost cause. You're writing them outside the power of the gospel and the kingdom. And I think that's probably what you're getting at. Well, yes, that's true. But it's even more than that. It's that now, how do we have a discussion? If this is a mental illness, does God hold people with mental illnesses, whatever that means? Because again, you, even the, the people who we would have called crazy in scripture who are running around and beating themselves up and, you know, slashing against tombstones. The Bible talks about that in terms of demonic possession, in terms of not being in their right mind, but because they're being governed by something other than the spirit of God. And this brings back to the idea that the way revolutions take place isn't the way most people think. They don't realize that the first stage, and Rush Juni talks about this in his book, Law and Liberty. He says the first thing that happens is you get people to accept the ideas and you get people to be more concerned about how other people will view them rather than how God will view them. And so even within Christian circles, people are, I've had people say this to me where I made a statement and talked about something being an abomination, going, you don't want to say that. Oh, that's going to sound so bad. When people hear that, you better find another way to say that. And I'm saying, well, that's what God says. So this is what Rush Judy says in his chapter called Custom and Morality in his book, Law and Liberty. Wherever a society places custom above morality, there a revolutionary situation exists. When custom is more important than morality, the first step toward revolution has been taken. The moral foundations of the social order have been denied, and a revolution in standards and behavior has taken place. As a result, an important thrust of all subversive activity is the undermining of morality, 
where morality has been undermined, law and religion have also been undermined, so that the major task of revolution has been accomplished. A revolution cannot readily succeed where the existing order has moral vitality, but a revolution is virtually accomplished where moral order has been destroyed. How prophetic that was. It's interesting because speaking on that particular word, people would be objecting to the idea of saying something is an abomination. You know, that's putting a curse on somebody, or we prefer to use lighter language to say what God says. What God is basically saying about abominations is that people that participate in these abominations cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. There's a list of abominations from the Old Testament that St. Paul himself quotes in the New. And what's significant is that today in our culture, to say that somebody is outside the kingdom or is going to hell is considered a crime. And when I was doing advocacy for Christians in India, they are passing religious constriction. Uh, they call them anti-conversion laws. And so there are parts of India where if you go and preach a religion that says, if you don't believe my religion, then you're going to go to hell. They say that's that's a hate speech, that's putting a curse on somebody, that's manipulating somebody, you can go to jail for that. And these are starting to be passed in the West as well, to use your language in a way that says there is a moral standard. If you fail to keep this moral standard, you're going to hell. That type of harsh but biblical language is being banned in certain parts of the world. So as Christians who are looking at this, we have to wonder, why is it that the rulers and kingdoms of this world would want us to stop speaking in terms of abomination of hell why are these the things that are attacked in our language and it's because it is these moral standards that give the gospel its strength that allow the kingdom to say here's black here's white here's where the true standards are and we should not be surprised that in the course of christians and watching their language the attempt is to manipulate you to believe that speaking biblically in a way that offers the grace and hope of salvation is the first type of language to be banned and considered faux pas. Exactly. So why won't people use biblical language? Well, in some cases, maybe they don't know it. Maybe where their conversion experience happened, it's the sermons and the teaching are much more about feeling good about yourself and having personal self-esteem than recognizing yourself as a sinner in need of grace. But I think those who could tell you the correct theology are more concerned with their job, their pension, their tenure. And it's as though the way we measure whether something is correct for us to do is how little it will cost us, as opposed to the blessings that are derived to individuals and societies that will unabashedly stand for God's truth. That's right. So... I guess as a pastor, you'd have to agree that a lot of this happens at the pulpit level and the pulpit encouraging families to teach their children the proper language. And instead of talking about somebody who dresses as a woman and puts lots of makeup on and call that person a drag queen, that's not biblical language. This is perverted individuals pretending to be women. They're flaunting God's created order. And so the fact that people are outraged that they have such people reading to children in public libraries, 
don't go to the public library. There's not much <laughs> there anyway. Their own libraries. How come we don't have such big church libraries that people can come and get good books out of the library? You see, we have liked the idea that if the state pays for this, that, or the other thing, then we're okay with it. The current thing that's happening now in terms of, and I've talked to people who have this happening, that their children, because they've put them into public schools and they haven't reared them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, are becoming gender confused and deciding, wouldn't it be great to try this? And there are a whole bunch of people now who don't know what to do with their children because if they speak against it, they could be censured for hate speech against their own children. And the the attack continues. I think there's a great hope in changing our speech too. Uh, we read in the 11th chapter of Hebrews that by faith, we understand that the worlds have been framed by the word of God, right? So everything in this world is, is framed by God's word. And those who are attempting to redefine or redraw the boundaries, the etymological foundations of what our world is, are ultimately striving against God's standards. And so while perhaps in this particular decade or even this century, those who are defining the terms may have made some headway, we can clearly see that there is not a future to thinking of men and confusing them with women. There's not a future of of identifying people as, quote, homosexual, because there's no future in these types of of worldviews. There is, in our Christian identity and words, a way of seeing the world and speaking about the world that has a certain victory implied. So as Christians, we need to come and have a certain confidence that God's standards of what an abomination is and what righteousness is and what holiness is, is going to win at the end of the day. And so we need to take back that perspective of victory and understand that the definitions that prevail today have so shallow, so, so ready to be pulled out roots. And so we need to take our hands to the plow and begin redefining, take out the dictionary and teaching our children the way to distinguish truth from evil. Because the sword of the Spirit, the offensive weapon, is the Word of God. And if you won't use God's words, then you have a plastic sword that won't do much of anything. (laughs) Yes, that's right. What I've taken to do whenever I see on Facebook uh, a comment about, are these people crazy? Or I can't believe what's happening in New York about the abortion thing. All I do is I put all that hate God love death. Mm. All that. Why not just quote the scripture as the answer to what this is? It isn't about, oh, they just don't really understand their biology or the poor women or this, that, and the other thing. It's all that hate God love death. Of course, they will seek to kill people. Why would you expect anything else? Right. And language and choosing our words is another place where Rushdie's principle, which of course is derived from the scripture of self-government, can really be practical. Right? So if we go back to the garden, God gives his word, he says, don't eat from this tree. And then the first <laughs> recorded words, the first audible thing we have from Adam is <laughs> the man said, and then these words that he comes against God, right? The the fall of humanity is found in Adam's poor choice. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's recorded here in this first sentence 
uh, but the woman, right? So Adam's greatest sin, the one that got him kicked out of the garden, is by not quoting God's words, but by coming up with his own definition of what the standards should be. So uh, even from that very moment, and then this plays, of course, into um, the self-government principle, by going back and reading the epistle of St. James, there is something special in there about a man who guards his tongue. He compares it to the, the bridle of a horse. There in that self-discipline of watching what we say determines all of our other actions. Our self-government begins with choosing consciously what our words say. The power that words have, we can talk about all day. God's word, the power of Christ's word, the power of words at creation, the power of words at healing, the power of the Holy Scripture to provide the foundation for every subject. But if a man in his individual autonomy rejects God's standard, then he becomes double-minded, he becomes a fool, he becomes lascivious, he becomes all of these things that James describes. And so watching what you speak is very important and the center of really what Christian Reconstruction is all about. And if you want to talk about hate speech, hate speech is not telling people the truth. It's not hateful to tell someone who is doing something that God says will keep him out of heaven, keep him out of the presence of our Savior for eternity. If you don't share the truth with someone, and I'm not going around and say, well, what you need to do is use the, the nasty language that the world has, because there's plenty of things you could call somebody who's a homosexual. Why not use the Bible's term? But people have taken to, if you disagree with it, you are therefore unchristian. Personally, we should hope that all those who are currently sinning against God in any form repent of their sin. Selfishly, you might say, so that our culture would be better, but ultimately on a personal sense for them, that they don't spend eternity in hell. The more outrageous things are promoted, people need to respond biblically. Andrea, I think one issue or one area where identity and definitions have really been misconstrued, and you mentioned this in the negative sense, but also the positive view of marriage, of motherhood, of fatherhood. So much in today's Christian world paints being a mother as almost like a martyr's role. You know, she suffers throughout the entire day. Finally, at the end of the day, she can make it to her glass of wine and watch her television show. Instead of gloriously looking at what role she has, or even people who avoid motherhood completely because they see it as some type of bondage compared to the glory or the glamour of having their own career. What if we could take back the positive definitions of something that the Bible says is a great honor and blessing to have and to raise godly seed? I'm sure you deal with women all the time who have been taught by this culture to disparage motherhood. And, and to talk about how hard it is. And I'll always say, yeah, it's hard. But anything, I mean, doing brain surgery is hard. So if we're going to write something off as being unnecessary because it's hard, then we've thrown out a lot of the valuable functions that people do. But again, that's the way I think a lot of women justify that they're doing this lesser thing. What I always like to promote is I think many women are capable of heading companies, holding positions in political spheres, but why would they take a step down from what God gives them to do as wives and mothers? Right. To me, and that would all be a step down. <laughs> yes, it's true. In the scripture, being a mother is 
most likely to being a queen, raising a family. But it also goes to our culture, especially in Christian circles, our desire to be self-deprecating of our callings and of our affections. I've done this in sermons myself where you know, I feel guilty teaching on a subject that is difficult or rigorous. And so I'll come to the pulpit and I'll say, I know it's, it's a lot to ask people to, to tithe, or it's a lot to ask people to pray every day. And then I'll go into a self-deprecating statement about, and I sometimes fail to do this. And our culture has fallen into definitions and terms of the other side and are putting ourselves down. We have this mentality in defining ourselves by failure instead of by victory. And so as we look at sins or other things, we can see us falling into that same trap. We fail to set the standard for excellence because we ourselves are not willing to strive for it. We're afraid to call sodomy what it is because we recognize, maybe not on the outer level or at the conscious level, but we recognize that if we have standards for how other people should behave with their relationships, with their marriages, with their families, that those standards will also be applied to us. And so I think at one of the roots of why people choose the language they do today is because it's a way for us to get an excuse for our laziness or our laxity or even maybe our moral ineptitude. You know, the things that we do that are bad, that if we were to apply a standard to ourselves, we'd recognize those are bad. Right. And in today's world, you can do something dastardly and then just say, I apologize. A true apology isn't saying you're sorry. A true apology would be, this is the reason I did it, and then an identification as to whether or not it was in line with God's word. That's right. And uh, a, a true apology would have some form of, of restitutive uh, action. If you've really harmed somebody, you got to make restitution. If you've stolen from somebody, you got to follow the scriptures uh, standards of how do you make up for what you've done words themselves have the power they have the power to guide your actions words that don't guide your actions aren't powerful words right and they just become noise it becomes background noise where you just have to say these kinds of things in order to be heard when in actual fact if you just spoke the truth and you spoke god's words after him in the appropriate situation, of course, you'd have to know what those were. But when you use them, that's what brings life to people. That's what gets people to consider the way they're going. And that's the precursor to repentance. Somebody stopping long enough to examine what it is I'm doing. And we've seen, especially in politics these last few years, uh, how apologies and the use of language have really been manipulated I'm not sure if you followed too closely with the uh, the governor of Virginia. His right. Two apologies he gave uh, the the racist picture in his I think it was a college yearbook of him with the his Klan. medical school. It was his medical school yearbook. Medical school, yeah. Uh, where you know, first the the apology is you know this is an obscene thing or or you know, not acceptable, uh, and then the second apology is well that's not me. But we see kind of this this trend of seeing apologies uh, which are not meant to address the group that's been harmed. Uh, now, it's difficult in this because the Bible requires victims for there to be a crime. And so since we've moved away from that standard of a victim, a crime, a standard, and we've moved all that aside, really anything by a moving standard can become 
a crime. This gentleman, not to defend his actions whatsoever, perhaps in his medical school, that was an acceptable thing to do. I don't imagine it was, but perhaps. Well, it must have been because the editor of the yearbook included it. It certainly was not wise by today's standards. But what what we see is when we allow language to be defined by the cultural norms, behavior that was done 30 years ago, behavior that was done last week that might have been acceptable is now going to be by some arbitrary standard judged. And this gentleman's political career, uh, his finances, his name, his legacy are all destroyed because of this moving standard. And so well, let me Christian, just interject here. Yeah, he of dug course. A hole. See, this is the same governor who was on a radio program talking about if a baby had, because he's a doctor, remember? He's a, he's a pediatric neurosurgeon. And he was saying that if a baby was born alive after an abortion, they'd give the baby comfort care. And then he or the doctor and the mother would have a conversation. So this whole thing about his medical school yearbook was a way to deflect attention off the fact that he just admitted that the bill that they were proposing was murder. Right. right? And you know what? What about all the actors who have ever acted in movies and put on a Klan outfit? <gasps> Look how racist that is. You see, this is where somebody's indiscretion or somebody's whatever it was, how is that a crime? Whereas murdering a baby, oh, that's not a crime. So that's where I'm saying we better start talking in biblical terms. It's murder. I mean, infanticide talks about the murder of infants the same way patricide would be the murder of your father, but it's murder. That's and right. God's word says you shouldn't do that. This idea of changing or transforming language, it's not just cultural development. It's there's always a motivation, an agenda, an ideology underneath these subversive changes. Everything in the Christian identity is trying to be taken away. You know, today in our culture, we have uh, a resurgence of something, you know, democratic socialism or, or extreme liberalism, whatever you want to call it. And I see young people, my age and younger, people in their 20s and 30s who are taking Christian words, words like charity, you know, from the Latin caritas, love taking the word charity and applying it to governments. The government should be charitable. The government should love us. <laughs> they're anthropomorphizing the state in a way they don't even acknowledge they're doing through language. They want the state <laughs> to love them. And this is one of the subtle ways that our choice of language, our co-opting of Christian identity into paganism or humanism uh, has really been successful in the last generation. I think people need to develop their Bible meters. You know, like Geiger counters could to detect certain metals. Well, be aware of how arguments are framed. I'll give you one example before we close. I was reading an article from mothers who were talking about how distressed they were that their children, specifically their girls, are coming home from school and saying that they're boys and going through hormonal treatments and surgeries. And this was five anonymous moms because they were afraid of coming and using their names for fear of retribution. Well, the third out of the five moms happened to be a lesbian who she and her lesbian partner were distressed over their daughter. Now, if you don't stop there, 
and say, wait a minute, I'm not going to listen to this as the argument because these are people who are violating God's law. We have to have our meter up that says, yes, I can empathize how somebody would be very distressed over a girl in their family doing this, but we don't, it's a subtle way, I think, to legitimize the argument when people are saying, even lesbians are coming out and saying that transgenderism is bad. <laughs> oh, what are we supposed to do with that? If we're yeah, not saying, right. okay, God calls lesbianism an uncleanness, different penalty than a male homosexual, but it's still an uncleanness. And those folks won't enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's right. I hear similar, similar types of argument, you know, uh, our narrow band of Christianity, there's lots of, of Christians who disagree with us. And so, for example, in the Roman Catholic Church today, there are Jesuit scholars who say, well, quote, homosexual orientation is how God created them. We need to respect the dignity of the individual person. And so homosexual advocates will come to me and say, well, even the Roman Catholics agree with us on homosexual. It's like, well, they're not the standard. The standard right. is the most people... Uh, the standard isn't democracy. The standard isn't the mob. The standard is the word of God. And if we fall into this trap of democratizing our language, then it will continue on the path of obscurity, randomness, and uh, perversity. Let God be true and all men liars. That's right. Steve, any recommendations on the whole aspect of using biblical language and kinds of a good resource for people who find this an interesting topic? Well, we have to remember that all of the Bible's language begins with those first 10 words, right? So if you haven't read Rushdoney's commentary on the Ten Commandments, then I would contend it's very difficult for you to understand how words and justice make sense. So go through Institutes again. I think he's also written a book called, uh, is it Word and Flux? The Word uh, of Flux. The Word of Flux, that's right. I hope we've given people food for thought here. A lot of my students in my classes have heard me say this, so they're, a lot of them are hearing this again. It never ceases to amaze me how our culture gives us great opportunities to go back to God's word and say, what does God say on this subject? Thank you, Andrea, for the conversation today. I hope our listeners are encouraged to be careful with the words they choose and how they empower or tear down people with the type of language they choose. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.